afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 30th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject of COVID calls is COVID-19 and Donald Trump. My guest is journalist and cultural critic Virginia Heffernan. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using my handle at US of Disaster. And you can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. And we will in the next week or so, we're working on getting the COVID calls podcast up on Stitcher and on iTunes and on Spotify. So please stay tuned for that. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself if you have a topic that you'd like to discuss on COVID calls. On Monday, we will talk about pandemics and other disasters in history. One of our regular features on COVID calls to bring in some historians and get their perspective. My guests are Caroline Grigo at the Queens University of Charlotte and Tiago Sariva, my colleague at Drexel University in Philadelphia. We're gonna talk about hurricanes, Jim Crow, plague, and more. Please join us for that discussion. As of today, there are 2,783,512 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That is up from 2,682,225 cases yesterday. 886,213 of those are in the United States, up from 856,209 yesterday, and there are now a total of 50,780 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 47,272 yesterday. Donald Trump has been on my mind. Has he been on yours too? I expect, perhaps. I unfollowed him on Twitter long ago, but that doesn't keep him from reaching me every day, multiple times a day. I regret that. I'm sorry that he takes up so much space in my mind, in part because it's not space well used and I don't have any space to spare. But well, there he is. And that was all before COVID-19. In fact, before he was elected, I wrote an op-ed for which I got my very first really serious angry hate mail about his unfitness as a potential leader in disasters. Secretary Clinton, I argued, would be much better. She had never shamed nurses for treating Ebola patients poorly, or she'd never lied about her actions on 9-11. Uh, she believed, believes in climate change. It seemed a bit like a niche op-ed, I admit that, uh, I guess so. But when Hurricane Maria happened, and then when the campfire happened, my fears and the fears of many others were realized. It's not that Trump mismanages the government in times of disaster, he certainly does that, but it's that he uses disasters as a tool to further erode the badly frayed social contract in America. I think he's not clueless when it comes to disaster. He's been portrayed this way often. I think he's strategic, or maybe I think that just because he's made me paranoid. And I think I confessed to that at the beginning here a few minutes ago. So I need to talk to someone. I need to talk to someone about this. 
And that's why I thought it would be great to reach out to my guest today, Virginia Heffernan. So let me introduce her. Virginia Heffernan is an accomplished journalist and cultural critic. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times, as well as the Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, and Politico. She writes a regular column for Wired Magazine and also for the LA Times. She is the co-host of the Trump cast on Slate, and she is also the author of Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art, which came out in 2016 with Simon & Schuster. Virginia, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks very, very much, Scott. So I wanna remind everyone you can get your questions in. You can email them to me directly if you want to, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put the questions in the YouTube live chat. So Virginia, I'd like to start the way I've been uh, starting with all guests, and that's just to ask you, how are things, where, where are you, and how are things where you are? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, in the former uh, epicenter, epicenter, you know, dead center of the disease. Um, and, uh, and now I think we've, we've given up that dubious distinction to Queens, um, but, but not far from Elmhurst Hospital, which you see a lot of on the news, really beleaguered uh, city hospital um, quite near here in Queens. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm inside, um, backlit. I didn't plan my tableau very well. Uh, and um, it, it probably been outside. I just went for a walk uh, on the waterfront um, and noticed once again, there's a sign encouraging us to engage only in passive and solitary activities. Um, and I briefly thought, I mean, just both of them, passive and solitary. Mm. So I spent some time musing about both of those and then thought maybe that should be the United States' new e pluribus unum because passive, we've been so passive, the United States, passive and solitary, because we've been so bad at unifying, coming together in our plurality that maybe we need something else. And also, I think like a lot of people who um, are accustomed to solitary work, like writing and all kinds of other work, solitary doesn't put me off. Um, and passive almost seems like a relief. <laughs> but as a journalist, I mean, you're, you're constantly interacting with people uh, day after day. Has this affected the way you do your work in that regard? Um, not so much except that um, I'm learning, like you, to uh, podcast from home. Um, so I set up a podcasting studio and um, my partner, who's a handyman, usually a handyman, um, but can't work in other people's houses, sort of reinvented himself as a sound engineer. Um, and so these kind of, wow. you know, one room podcast shops, media shops that we're all setting up, uh, you know, with, you know, greater or lesser luck. That's one of the things that we've done here to change things. And there have been cutbacks at Slate. So, you know, I, first my aunt died of COVID uh, two weeks ago. And then, um, and then I, I, I lost a huge chunk of income at Slate. So I, I, you know, I figure on some kind of COVID bingo card, I, like, I've hit two spots at least. It's kind of it's gallows humor, but. Yeah, I, I'm sorry about your aunt. Thank you. I want to um, talk to you about Donald Trump. Yeah. And um, and other things we will get to. Um, I want to actually, I just want to read a little bit of a piece you wrote. Your writing has been so great right now. And I, I want to just get to a piece you wrote in the LA Times last month uh, talking about Trump's Katrina. I'll just read a, a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. You said in Bush was a low information president, but he could with effort metabolize bad news. He never recovered from Katrina 
said one of his former advisors. President Trump, in his erratic efforts to manage the COVID-19 crisis, likewise, has been squirrely, scatterbrained, and late. His approval rating falling a bit since mid-February bumped up a touch. Wednesday, this is back in March, but nearly every election poll has former Vice President Joe Biden, now the presumptive Democratic nominee, beating him soundly in November's presidential election. It's a fool's game to call anything Trump's Waterloo, but this virus might be his Katrina, you said. So a month has passed since you wrote that. So I wanted to, to bring that back to you and, and see, does that uh, analogy still resonate for you? Is, is this still Trump's Katrina? Is it somehow different from that, worse than that? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of us who've been watching Trump closely, you know, professionally or inadvertently or just or because, you know, as you say, he's chronically in our faces, have wondered what might bring him to account. Um, we held out hope for, for the intelligence services, for the Mueller investigation, uh, which, you know, showed, showed 10 to 12 clear examples of obstruction of justice on the part of the President of the United States, and he slipped that knot. He went through a full impeachment. We had just come off that before this, um, and the, the Senate Republicans closed ranks and refused to try him or hear any evidence at all. Um, you know, we saw the same thing happen with Brett Kavanaugh, this kind of, um, you know, series of, of um, figures that just insult the common sense, you know, insult our, I mean, you hear a lot of talk about believing science, but what about simply believing, I don't, we don't need scientists to tell us that bleach in the bloodstream is not a cure for anything and is in fact a fast route to death. Um, so, you, you know, the fact that we all go running to consult federal prosecutors, doctors, lawyers, specialists, intelligence uh, agents to figure out what he's up to is really just, be, he really has us coming and going. I mean, we can, most of us can tell at first blush that this was gonna be a reckless president and indeed he has been. So what about, what about Katrina, his Katrina, or what about his Waterloo, or where is, it, one of those expressions, you know, when is it, mm -hmm. um, when does the rubber hit the road? I'm right. not sure I know exactly what that means. Yeah. There yeah. must be something where he will be yeah. forced to, he'll force be forced into a reckoning. Um, and I think everyone has given up hope that he's going to have some kind of come to Jesus moment where he says, oh, what a racist, corrupt fool I've been. I, I really need to mend my ways. That's not going to happen. But if nothing is certain but death and taxes, Trump showed us that actually taxes aren't certain and we're all in a like an April jubilee April where we don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> right. So yeah. taxes are out the window. Taxes are now alternate facts, but death is certain. And he and so this is the moment where he's looking at figures. He can't take them in as a um you know with like mirror neurons where he might understand that they're grieving people. You know exactly the opposite of Joe Biden that way who's face creases with condolences at the you know the slightest opportunity it's like his heart beats with any person who's who's grieved or mourned or felt sure. pain yeah. he's yeah. famous for showing up at funerals and shivas trump not at all trump was not invited to john mccain's funeral i mean he was meant to stay he's meant to stay away from no one wants consolations from him mm -hmm. um and so it's not like he's going to be aware of death in that way but he may recognize that it is not good for his re-election prospects if a lot of old people, his constituency, die in this country, if a lot of people are grieving, 
if a lot of people, you know, see him as having risked their lives to goose the economy. Um, it just turns out that that's not a bargain. You know, even the most committed Trump cultists are willing to make. I'll say one more thing. Right after Trump was elected, um, I was on Facebook and uh, and a kind of kind of right wing trollish figure, but but a little bit on the level, trying to make a good joke. Said, "Well, you know, uh, at least with Trump, you know, better nuclear winter than more letters in LGBTQ." I just. I don't think I've ever said out loud, let that sink in, but let that sink in. So, yeah. you know, now we're at the moment where whatever it is to own the libs, whatever worries they had about trans bathrooms or about Hillary's emails yeah. or about, you know, Hillary uh, right. being a woman seems to take a back seat. I mean, uh, you know, for all but the true, we are at the moment of revelation, Mike Pompeo, Bill Barr, some of the churches that stayed open at Easter and believe Jesus is their vaccine. Most people, most human organisms, most primates like we are say, I'll take another letter in or right, I'll give exactly. this one to the libs if it means staying alive. Yeah, I mean, even yesterday, it's, you know, I mean, we really had a point, somebody said, you know, injecting Lysol to own the libs. I mean, yeah. I, I just don't, I agree with you and that I just don't think those normal um, analogies hold up because he doesn't hold himself to any of the norms. In fact, he's been clear about that from the very beginning. That's what his entire campaign, I think, was premised on to a certain degree. Yeah. Nothing like anything you've seen in this arena before. Yeah. But that yeah. has meant so many different things to different people. And I, I like your, I like your, I like thinking about Bush and Katrina in this regard because, you know, Bush was in the first year of his second term when mm. Katrina happened. And people have yeah. mused about whether or not if that had happened in 2004, of course, it would have come right before the election, mm -hmm. whether or not he lost that election. And, and because it speaks to this broader question of whether or not elections can actually serve as this reckoning you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. may not believe in death or taxes, but an election presumably is still is still coming. So I guess my question yeah. to you is, I mean, I guess we are psychoanalyzing the president of the United States. Does he <laughs> see that as the only reckoning? That's the only atonement? Uh, I, by the way, I, I don't think it's an atonement. I don't think his hand will be forced and he'll begin to make amends. I, I, I mean, more like it will this be his moment of, of defeat. I mean, right. it, you know, his exposure where we, you know, discover that he has something worse than no clothes. Um, uh, but um, I can't help but think, and there's many problems with this, but I can't help but try to think in um, some kind of evolutionary terms. I mean, humanity globally on every continent is confronted with a new microbe. And because of that microbe, we're this, we're, 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 our lives have completely changed. I just saw that box office profits, movie box office profits for last month $414. I mean, it's just a small one, but Hollywood, I mean, I, I, you know, $414. There are no movies showing anywhere. The Georgia governor who's opened movie theaters for, yeah. for Monday has nothing to play. It. Nothing to show. Yeah. Right. He has nothing to show. So, um, so, so, you know, that's just one example, but just think it all, we just, we shut it all down. We just, we just gave up. We decided we'll stop this. And I think we're thinking like microbes. We're thinking with the part of us that wants to live, not die. I do not think that the arc of uh, history 
uh, bends perfectly teleologically to something we call justice, but just just uh, just by you know tautologically, tautologically, whatever survives survives. It bends toward life, mm -hmm. right? So the thing that dies dies, and the thing that lives lives. It's not much to say, right. but um, but so I've wondered. My anxiety about Trump from almost the beginning was: is Trump does Trump reckon? Re represent a kind of adaptation that we might be selected for you know a kind of solipsist of the present moment mm -hmm. who uh who you know says whatever comes into his mind and is able time after time to punch us in the face enough to uh keep us worrying about him and keep us and and defy in this nietzschean way any kind of shame or any kind of you know shrug off conscience you know shrug off just say things that are that are that are so beyond the pale that that you feel like kind of some Jimmy Stewart figure when um, when when he talks, you know, you, you start to say like, oh, but that's not right. No, <laughs> you know, everyone feels yes. like a Girl Scout. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it turns out Michael Cohen and Anthony Scaramucci and J Joe Walsh, yeah, start, you know, and the architects of the Iraq War, right, feel like Girl Scouts. No, that's looking, too yeah. far, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and so what I wondered, though, is, is this an adaptation or is this the, you know, the would-be death drive? Is this, mm. if it's an adaptation, just go with me. I, I, yeah, you know, no, keep this going. This is not my area of expertise. Yeah. But if it's an adaptation, okay, well, let's say there's a spontaneous mutation and it's Trump with his configure, his microbiome, his body. I will say my brother is a personal trainer, a physiologist, and in his community, the thing they wonder about the most is, why isn't Trump dead? You know, he, he doesn't exercise. Um, he, uh, you know, never sees yeah. a doctor except he eats to, you know, every day. He eats burgers on his bed and he's, you know, he's, he's sedentary. Yeah. He has a hard time walking, but, but there he goes. So he's, he, so let's say he's a spontaneous mutation that, that doesn't have to conform even to most laws of nature of how arteries work. Um, and what you could say, and what I think I've been saying, lots of people have been saying from the beginning is that he represents this kind of death drive. Like, what he's interested in is like killing people at the border. I mean, just the brutal language. When he talks about abortion, he loves these graphic snuff scenes of, you know, dead babies or women with duct tape, just death, right? Mm -hmm. And the environment, he just, you know, he, he, like, he just seems to see beauty in death and destruction. And I took a little solace in that because death cults and, 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 a, and a death drive don't end, well, they have their own end built into them. Right. But I started to have this nagging, horrible feeling. What if this is a spontaneous mutation that we, inhibited by our boring middle-class consciences, just don't recognize as what's next? And so I said this, is, and then I thought, well, then there must be others like him, his sons. And someone recently said to me, yeah, like the Tiger King, you know, this, <laughs> the, this character, a uh, real-life character on TV that has been on this show, yeah. uh, been on the, this, this Netflix show, who seems very like Trump um, and now is in jail for it. But so is, you know, is that sort of, is, is that sort of like a humans 5.0 or whatever version we're on? A kind of, um, well, I think of it as a solipsist of the present moment, uh, cheating out always to the camera, terminally unhealthy, uh, domineering, um, aim, aiming to subjugate others, a lot of cognitive glitch, what look like glitches, but maybe they're adaptations. But with COVID, I've and, and especially with you know Trump's Trump's uh, recommendation that we all mix up a Kool Aid with um, 
Gosh. involving bleach and Clorox and disinfectants and shoot it into our veins yesterday, I thought, no, this is a death cult. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no streak of an, of a real adaptation in this. But, you know, who am I to say? But I get comfort thinking that, you know, it's just not, it's not my failure to recognize a kind of Superman of the future, um, but rather we've seen him clearly for what he is, which is a force of destruction and ultimately self-destruction. This, the, some of these things you're, you're raising here, I mean, I, I talked about um, on COVID calls with Howard Conrother, who's a risk expert, and, yeah. he, and he thinks a lot about what he calls cognitive bias, so that the difficulty mm -hmm. of explaining risk to, mm -hmm. to average people and, and to mm -hmm. think about it in a sort of social psychological way, because the, the conflict here is, is you know, if we have let's say wise policies about development on our coastline. Well, mm -hmm. to do that, to enact that, you're gonna to have to get people to understand risk better. They gotta think mm -hmm. about things that are low probability, high consequence events mm -hmm. and things like mm -hmm. that. He talked about these, what he calls the, these cognitive biases. And a couple of the most important ones are optimism. Um, mm -hmm. That people think, you know, something bad could happen, but it'll never happen to me. Right. Hmm. Um, and then people are also just in general really bad at visualizing um, uh, uh, basically the way like the, the way the pandemic has spread, you know, mm -hmm. that it that it it multiplies much faster than we can somehow envision. Right? Mm -hmm. We sort of think mathematically one, two, three, four, five. We don't think about the curve. Right. Yeah. And so we, we have these biases built in um, and we just tend to think. And so convincing people bad things can happen to them is sometimes hard for people in that mm -hmm. risk world. And, mm -hmm. and as he described those, I thought every single one of those applies to the president of the United States. He yeah, sees himself right. as truly unique. Bad things cannot happen to him. Um, and maybe bad things will happen to everybody else, but he sees himself also as somehow truly alone, which yeah. is very odd considering well, he's the president of the United States. And then there was this Times piece yesterday describing, you may have seen it, this, describing him right now and how he spends his time alone mm -hmm. watching television mm -hmm. and, and feeling bad that even when, as he turns to Fox News, they're saying bad things about, about mm -hmm. him. And I won't say I felt, no, I will say, I felt sympathy. How could you read that and not feel? I was like, how is this possible? This person has all this capacity to do wise things, to receive mm -hmm. counsel, to go against his cognitive biases and act on our behalf. And I'm reading a story about him holed up in the White House, eating a cheeseburger, scanning Fox News for somebody to say something nice about him. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um, I think you respond, I wrote a, a piece in the, in, the, in the New York Times about uh, being in recovery um, for addiction during this time. There are a lot of online meetings about this. And one of the things that, alcoholics anyway, notices that it's the pose, the early pose of toughness that some of us take on is actually because we could barely stand a micron of pain. So you look like you're a great risk taker, but really because you're like constantly trying to flee, you can't even, even endure ordinary pain. At the first sight of it, you decided that, you know, the first intoxicant, a little ethyl alcohol could like really make your humanity, you know, to bring it to a control, a controlled, you know, level. Um, and, um, and, you know, I heard one recovered alcoholic say that he was so, uh, he thought he was such a wild man in his drinking days. And then where he ended up was the last two years in a single chair in his house with a gun underneath his, 
you know, bolted with a gun underneath the chair, sleeping in it, eating in it, drinking in it, you know. And sometimes Dave Eggers has this fantastic novel. I don't know if you saw it, but it, uh, a kind of um, old fashioned allegory called The Captain and the Glory about Trump. Mm. It oh, came out a couple of months ago. And I, oh. I really don't want it to get lost in the code. It's really interesting. Mm. Um, sort of like um, Animal Farm, some, like it, a really kind of cool, ambitious huh. effort by Eggers. But he has Trump very like that guy I just described, really hiding under his bed in fetal position in, the, in this very, very small life. You know, you'd think that a president. I mean, you know, it's not as though, sometimes I think the president is actually less ambitious than, than the rest of us and less, well, certainly less curious, but less ambitious and less, um, and maybe even less eager for real world power. Like, you know, it's not like all of his qualities, all of our qualities are good and all of his are bad. There are things he's missing that are odd. Um, and so in the, in the captain and the, and the glory, yeah, he's under his bed, curled up in fetal position, listening through the vent to a voice of some kind of Stephen Miller figure, telling him mm-hmm. things he needs, wants to hear, stoking some of his fears, allaying others. Sorry. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. I'll watch the cough. Um, yeah. Are you okay? And yeah, I'm all right. Um. So there's that, but just the shrinking life, and I, you're watching, and we've talked a little bit about you and I have about Governor Cuomo. You know, Cuomo, what I like about Cuomo is that he is a politician who who wants real world power, like not fame. You know, whatever the thing Trump is going for, like always campaigning, always wanting to get reelected, he doesn't really seem to want to govern. And I mean this in good and bad ways. Like, it's not like it's necessary. It's certainly not noble to want power. Like, but, but, but. It, it it like Cuomo's ego is invested in, key, you know, his how how well he is a shepherd to his people, you mm-hmm. know, and it and just watching someone who is not cheating out to the cameras, not squaring his jaw in this artificial way, just who is constant. He's like worried about the numbers and try and trying very hard to think, do systems thinking so that he can make this thing work. And his, 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 he's gratified when he sees not praise from people around him, but when he sees that, you know, the plans he carefully made about allocating resources to different parts of the state are beginning to pay off. Don't get, you know, too excited, right. but are beginning to pay off in these ways. And he's, and, 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 you know, you need a leader, not a leader who's all heart, not a leader who's a perfect, you know, martyr, but you need a leader that cares about those things instead of this strange vanity project that, that a game show host undertook to take the Oval Office. It's just, it's so appalling to just watch day in and day out that particular desecration. It's just, it's the worst possible match of this kind of Vegas carny, you know, trying to trying to run the country. I think it's the, the I, I was also back to something you were saying earlier about the the kind of, the drive to be loved, um, or as you said, this, but on the other side, this sort of death drive. And, and it makes me think about really some of the things that like Stanley Kubrick was going for in the hmm. 1960s, you know, with Dr. Strangelove. Yes. And I mean, I think a lot and others, many have written about, you know, that the kind of paradox of, of trying to retain sanity at the height of the Cold War, in which you're like, let's, 
um, make a life and go pick up the kids at four and prepare for the nuclear apocalypse that's going to come at five. You know, yeah. I mean, it's very hard to manage those two things simultaneously. So most people didn't. And yeah. It, it kind of seems like where you're going with Trump is that he, he gravitates towards the latter. He gravitates towards uh, General Turgidson, like, let's go in the bunker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, yes. And I think he's actually said, I mean, he draws his ideas of what war is from, um, from movies. probably only half remembered from movies, from yeah. half remembered scenes from Patton with George C. Scott and half remembered scenes from the opening of uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it's um, we, well, the thing is, we have this to deal with. It couldn't have been good for our immune systems to have... Um, Trump, as I say, kind of felt like punching us in the face, you know, or, or, or defying all kinds of common sense. You know, that's the thing that was so unnerving about him is that, you know, it's one thing that he's not good at science or that he lies, right? But there's a certain way that kind of baseline, something even more profound than mores, um, uh, you know, he was, he was defying I think in, I mean, I've, I've written about this, but he, I think in consistent with his background in the, in the kind of Howard Stern whack pack, that there's a certain kind of mm -hmm. uh, figure that, that came up in first on shock jock radio and then all the way to reality mm -hmm. television, which informed Fox news um, that if you were, you know, willing and game and desperate enough and playful enough to play Hank, the angry drunken dwarf or, Donald Trump, the womanizer, yeah. you could um, enter into this stable of unpaid rep yeah. repertory actors um, on these shows. And just to see a kind of, right. you know, that Coney Island whack pack spirit, um, you know, even Howard Stern has back backed away from that and recognizes, you know, how toxic it ultimately was. But, um, but that, just to have that anyway, in a position of power is continually undermining to everyone's idea of you know, people use different words, decency or, you know, charitableness. I mean, just a baseline. Um, and for, by the way, to set the baseline, it's worth saying 97% of Americans are under stay-at-home orders right now. And the vast majority of that are obeying them. Sure. So like we hear about the churches that are open. I just saw signs of churches across the country that are closed. Everything, every denomination of Christian church you've ever heard of, plus a lot that you haven't, ones that look like cathedrals, ones that look like shacks, all of them, closed, closed, we're praying for you, closed. And, you know, just the idea that we would, I mean, the church on my corner, you know, it's never been closed. It's against its principles to be closed. And all of these other churches too, and they're all closed. Yeah. So we ha do have a baseline this, in this country of just common sense. Like, I, I don't want my grandmother to die. I don't want to die today. I'm going to help out. And, uh, and so, and then we hear, because we have Trump as the president, we get disproportionate attention to swallowing bleach and doing, doing these crazy things. But that, um, and that point has been made, I think, very well, and you, you made it well there about the churches, that what we've really seen is Americans mostly following the advice Amazing. of people they'd never met before. Yeah. Who maybe their governor or maybe their um, university president or whoever it is that's telling them, hey, you need to you need to pack up, you need to go home. We'll let you know when it's safe to come back. Mm -hmm. Running counter to all of these high flown ideas we have about 
American liberty and individualism and, and even those protests, which seemed so compelling for about five yeah. minutes in front of the Minnesota State House or Texas State House, those were organized and those mm -hmm. were and those were really small. They um, were really, really small. All, I mean, you know, 97% of us are not working or not leaving, mostly not leaving our houses, not seeing our friends, um, you know, not going to choir practice, uh, not celebrating Easter, not, you know, it, it, it's really, it's really amazing. And now I, I will say, I'm not sure that that's just out of obedience to a leader. Um, I think that the, as you say, the, the possible, possible or probable astroturfing of those protests was in response to an organized, you know, a kind of lead, leader, but there's, there's this other thing, and I sound like a mystic here, but it's, I just read this article by Norman Deutsch, who's, uh, who has, he's a, he's a psychiatrist who's also done work on the, on the human microbiome. And he says, we, we really have evolved to fight viruses. Like, our bodies are thinking for us right now, you know? And, um, and the fact that we're, just some funny things, like Fleischman says sales of yeast are up 25%. So that all these kind of jokes on Instagram, everybody's making bread. Well, we're like clinging to this friendly fungus, yeast, that's just been our <laughs> pal all along. Because we've just been hit by this, by this, this awful looking, you know, virus with, that we always see the image of that looks like a medieval morning star yeah. is going to come and tear us open. And instead, we just want that friendly yeast. And we just want our bodies to have their integrity, you know? And we want like the extensions that we've devised to go to some of the other bees in the hive, the ventilators or the dialysis or the masks to go to the people who need them. It's just a, some hive thinking that seems to be alive in the land. I can't imagine under any circumstances that we didn't feel in our bodies an existential threat, every minute an existential threat in our cells, that we would give up the whole economy. I just don't know. Like, I, I mean, you couldn't have even told me that under these circumstances we would do it. Yeah, and it's not a question of good leadership. We have a, the worst leader, worst president of all time. It's a question of some kind of self-preservation that has kicked in in a way that it, that it never has before. Deutsch argues, by the way, that, uh, you know, we so much talk of how our, our, our brains are wired to flee, uh, you know, megafauna, to flee tigers or catch tigers mm -hmm. and lions. But really, the, the, the evolution at the molecular level is to, is to survive viruses. Hmm. So this is like what we have been training to do since agricultural days. Our, our bodies are really ready. And it's also quite amazing how many bodies are rallying. So if know? our bodies are evolved to meet this moment, and our society seems to be evolved pretty well to meet this moment. Why am I so obsessed with the aberrant behavior of Donald Trump? Yeah. I mean, I mean this comes back yeah. to what we were just talking about. His behavior is so extreme mm -hmm. and yet I can't let it go. And, yeah. And yeah, part of it is because he's president of the United States and he's had certainly there are deaths that you can lay at his inaction and his, and his poor actions. But there's a, this other part of me um, and others have said to me, they're like, just, let it go. He's an aberration. And after November, this will be looked upon as just four weird years in American history. It was mm -hmm. just a matter of time before something like this. We have a democracy. Things can happen. And it's not reflective of any of the 
things you're most worried about. I, I don't know. People yeah. maybe say things like that to you. You run a podcast. You know him yeah. better than anyone who's observing in this, in this way. Why are we yeah. so worried about it? I mean, I certainly have no zen around Donald Trump, but what I do have is something akin to adrenal fatigue. I mean, we started doing Trumpcast in 2015 when he was a, just a kind of a joke, and the idea was to retire it. We had a, we had a big closing party on uh, in uh, in November 2016 to you know before the inauguration of who we hope would be our new president, Hillary Clinton, and we obviously the show went on and on and on and. Um, yeah, I've been through many cycles of anger, and recently though, I I thought it's possible that my anger at Donald Trump is maxed out. Like I've actually reached a level of hatred that is has no, nothing beyond it. And it's actually hatred. I mean, it, you know, you're not supposed to cop to, or it's supposed to be sort of wrong to feel hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've come to with Trump, so if we're fighting this microscopic battle with these microbes, and that's really our chief priority, um, you know, it, Cuomo is right to try to get us more resources or get more resources to the states that need it um, and the hospitals that need it and resourcing the hospitals and helping our fellows in our hive survive is what we're what we're doing. But hating Donald Trump is another side of things where and I don't know, maybe this this sounds overly optimistic, but, you know, it's sort of the way that spiritual leaders say, like, this he's a lesson, you know, he's a referendum on everything about us. Um, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, what do you think about fathers? What do you think about narcissists? What do you think about abuse? What do you think about the legislature? I mean, when was the last time you did a complete audit of everything you believed? I mean, I've had, you know, we've all had this late life education. Uh, my friend Karen Schwartz was joking. She was like, oh, I did my JD on twitter.com. Now I need a PhD in in epidemiology from twitter.com you know everyone yeah. rushes to follow experts right. like you um at the at this time i mean it's just you can almost feel your brain growing um and the hope is that you know our our brains hastily reorganize and 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 you know in some way evolve um before our hatred burns us up you know and that's why i sort of put a cap on i thought i don't even have a word stronger than hate so I, I can't, you know, toss and turn. I was thinking so many guests on Trumpcast and they're all fantastic, but so many guests on Trumpcast are just trying to find a new superlative to describe, you know, how horrifying Trump is. Well, maybe um, we need a Manhattan project for that. We talked about we, yes, exactly. <laughs> just just devoted just, to a lexicon, you know, <laughs> like a near legged stallionly orc, like the ones the Scots do about Trump, you know, yeah. just how can I take him apart in language? And once that finally got tiring, and I, you know, I've been doing it for four years, so it ha- I had to wear out on it. Um, I tried to say, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know, Governor Cuomo says it. We will come out of this stronger. We came out of 9-11 mm-hmm. stronger. You have to believe that you'll, you know, gain from disorder. You have to believe it. I mean, just as a survival strategy during disaster. And even just taking inventory of what has you know, has happened in my life and the lives of people around me, just the way that they've um, rallied in really interesting ways and brought to, uh, you know, my politics have changed a little bit. I, you know, I, I really wanted Hillary Clinton to win and I, I don't think I would have, I would have wanted her to win in 2020, you know, I, um, and, um, and that's been interesting to watch and even, you know, unearthing, some of the 
Washington rot. You know, I'm not happy about the prospect of Joe Biden coming in and glad handing with Mitch McConnell if he, you know, if, ideally if he's elected. But, you know, things have really changed. Yeah, it, so things too. are really dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and yet a lot might come out of that. written about, and we've been talking a little bit about Governor Cuomo and Governor Newsom in California, but I want to draw you out on that a little bit, a little bit more, not only a study in contrasts with Trump, but also we're learning a lot about federalism again, mm-hmm. we keep learning maybe unexpected things about how this country is put together. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your thinking about the governors in this whole play. I mean, not just yeah. the ones who seem to be intentionally drawing a distinction between themselves and Trump, but also the ones who are trying to find their own way right now, like the governor of Georgia, the governor of Mm -hmm. Texas, or the governor of Florida, who are, they're sort of Trumpists, but they're taking it in their own, in their own direction. There's so many characters on the national state. We usually don't know, most Americans can name maybe their own governor. Right. Now we've all got 10 or 15 of them swirling around in our minds. So talk about governors a little bit. So this, I mean, when Trump backed out of the Paris Accords, we saw the muscle of mayors across the country who said, "We're, you know, well, we're not dropping out." And um, and then obviously we saw the the you know kind of interesting campaign of Pete Buttigieg and some and and Michael Bloomberg, two mayors, um, you know, and then thought about consortia of mayors and how mayors, you know, in some ways they 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 wrestle with some of the same problems, of course, of transportation. They advise each other. Um, they admire each other, they learn from each other. Um, and now we're sort of seeing the same thing with governors. I know that, um, that Cuomo the other day said, they told a great story about, um, about the governor of of Rhode Island, is it? Hogan? Um, Uh, Maryland. Maryland, sorry. Yes. Um, uh, who had managed to negotiate with South Korea Mm -hmm. independently, uh, I think with some help from his wife. Yeah. to score, you know, some huge number of tests. And yeah. Cuomo said, told a story about sitting with his daughters, watching this very impressive thing with Hogan. And by the way, Hogan is like the head of the Council of Governors and yeah. Cuomo is second to him. So they, they're quite close. And Hogan's a Republican. Yeah. And, you know, he just he kind of did this nice, like, good for him, you know, that he was able yeah. to do that. Anyway, he's watching it on television with his two daughters. And he, he really, you can see him get misty and jealous thinking of how beautiful <laughs> South Korean Airlines was. And also he has told us many times and Cuomo often pays attention to his own shortcomings that he does not know how to do international trade. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to think about it. He can't negotiate with China. That's why he's the governor and not the president of the United States. Hmm. And that's why, you know, he worked in HUD and not in, you know, not in for, on the Council of Foreign Relations. So he, uh, so he's clearly everything about this um, is, is, is uh it's made him jealous but he's but he's but he's a good, good team player at this point and he says you know nice job and he said one of his daughters looked at him and gave him side eye then he turned to the other daughter and he said she's the more literal one and she said why didn't you think to do that dad <laughs> you know? right right and it's so i mean just to think about these people alone 
in their houses with their children, yeah. um, making such consequential decisions yeah. all the time and yeah. having to freestyle. You know, what yeah. he said is good for Hogan. He thought outside the box, he was creative, you know? Those are like cliches, but I th sort of thought that is so, I mean, this is, these are, you know, stewards, shepherds of, uh, you know, of these, of these, of big groups of people with regional interests. And um, they're also governors who really do put party politics aside, um, as governors tend to do much more than, than senators and Congress people. And, um, and so looking to Hogan, I thought, um, I thought for, you know, kind of healthy competition, mm -hmm. you know, let's say it's like, it's like, uh, you know, a tiny bit of free market, you know, put these guys together and he's like, I'll think of a better way to get masks mm -hmm. to New York, you know, not the worst, not the worst thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is I've really been inspired by it. A lot of people have been put off by it, but these, these regional councils and packs. Yeah, and, I wanted to ask you about that. What you thought about that, these regional yeah. compacts. Yeah. You know, people are joking and I um, heard, oh, I'm getting some, are you hearing some interference? No, I think we're okay. Oh, okay. Um, you know, people called when the map started to divide up and first there were the, were the I think I know the original name and they've changed, but Western States, uh, the Western States Pact Multi-State Council. Mm -hmm. So it's the, it's California and the Pacific Northwest and then uh, New England and sort of those mid, mid, middle Atlantic states. Right. Um, and not all of New England, but but much of it. And um, I just thought that, you know, some people saw like civil war potential in this um, to see mapped off parts of the state. And, you know, I you think of like fantasy books like Lord of the Rings or Hunger Games and they have regional names. And I just thought like, it's too bad multi-state council. It just doesn't, you want it to be like <laughs> Rivendell or something, but um, the yeah. Shire. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, um, I thought that they just did a beautiful job saying we, you know, we're just working together. It was just sort of like mm -hmm. a union. It was so far from, um, it was like more like civil disobedience than like shots fired at Fort Sumter. It was just, we will open when we think it's right, mm -hmm. you know? And it gave them heft. Then the the Midwestern states formed one, including Kentucky. Right. And so we've had Mitch McConnell in the news saying blue states should all go bankrupt. Kentucky is now included in a region with lots of blue states. Kentucky has a Democratic governor. Yep. And is Kentucky a blue state? Like what's Mitch McConnell talking about with his own with his own state? Um and and you know, those are kind of astonishing. But the governors seem like they know that they will rise or fall on what they do in their states at this time. Mm -hmm. And they cannot work with, it, it's like siblings coming together against a, you know, abusive or negligent father. I mean, I hate to do those metaphors all the time, but it really, you know, Cuomo anyway, uses a lot of family metaphors. You see, he can't get out of his head and we should talk about the war metaphors. But one of the ways that he's good about this is just like a father in the best sense, you know, sort of paterfamilias, like, he talks about all the counties. He talks about himself quite literally as a father, a father that's been negligent sometimes, a father that's, that's now trying to pay closer attention to specific needs. Right. Um, you know, a father that wants equitable distribution of things from, you know, resources among his many children and constituencies. And, and that, you know, to see Kentucky participating in this other thing that has nothing to do with the reality show on center stage on Fox News, just nothing. Like right. it has to do with 
you know, Berea and Lexington and Louisville and, and, and just nothing to do with Mitch McConnell. And just watching that evolve has been incredibly interesting. I thought that yesterday, too, with this McConnell statement about letting states go bankrupt, I, I really thought about, again, about governors and the fact that they, they do have to know all their counties. Yeah. For a lot of Democratic governors have to uh, manage states that have divided government and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Maryland mm -hmm. is, is a great example of that. Yeah. But even Massachusetts has been a good example of that from, yes. from time yeah. to time. And they have to run a balanced budget which in fact also leads to all kinds of, well, bipartisanship often. And yeah. um, I just thought McConnell sort of saying, no, go ahead and go bankrupt. It, to me, it felt again like a Trumpian gesture. It's like, yeah, just yeah. walk away from it. Um, yeah. And I know he meant something a little bit more sort of deep signaling there to, to you know, Club for Growth. But I yeah. just took it as like, just go ahead and be irresponsible. And the response of Cuomo's yeah. response was like, come on guy yeah. like you and know he, pulled, he wasn't having he, it and then he pulled that card which you know i think charles pierce uh you know the 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 liberal fantastic columnist for for esquire said he thought was a a, a mistake but i but i actually thought that it was just the kind of clarity that we need which is you know trump has basically said and now mcconnell seconded it a version of i like people who weren't captured what he said about mccain you know, I like people, I was thinking he might say, I like people who weren't intubated. You know, I like cities that weren't hit hard by COVID, right? It kind of, it's just like, um, he he's not only indifferent to suffering, he hates it if you suffer. He thinks it's, he thinks you're a loser if you suffer, if you're McCain, or if you're a war hero. Um, and, um, and so, you know, while he was getting a lot of that, Cuomo had to say, you know, it's like, it's on the forbearance of, of states like New York. And this is not something, this is a kind of, we have a kind of um, ladies, gentlemen's and ladies agreement that we will, will not mention that, you know, it's a handful of states that keep the country in business. It just, for some reason, bringing up taker states and giver states yeah. um, is not in the spirit of a pluribus unum. But once you say blue lives, blue state lives don't matter, once McConnell says that, you know, Cuomo just wants to say, hey, hey, you know, we, the, New, York, New York puts more in the federal coffers than any other state. Kentucky is a taker state at the bottom of the list. And, you know, this idea that like, this is welfare for us, this is a bailout for us, you know, who's got, I think he said, you know, who's getting the bailout here? Mm -hmm. And Cuomo hasn't been especially critical of Trump. But he did need to, I mean, he, he's, he, it's, he's made it clear that they, that, you know, they're on opposite sides of many things, but he gives credit where it's due. But with the McConnell thing, he just can't, you know, just to get, give the middle finger to the, to the hard hit blue states, it was just too much. Just I, thought too he, much. I thought he had to answer and he did answer it well. And that sort of red welfare state argument, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of the nuclear, uh, for, yes. for blue state governors, they don't go there. Um, yeah, but the, so that to me was a tell that that he really did get he got pretty. Yeah, I mean, that. I wondered. I want. I'm. I mean, I'm curious what you think of this because Pierce said, you know, how sometimes like a, a horrible argument at, in a marriage is like, but I've been supporting you for ten years. You right. know, like there's certain things that you know, like they, you know, that like yeah. one there's person no that you said, that. there's yeah. no coming back from right. And that's sort of what I, I wondered, like you call it going nuclear. I wonder if you agree with Charles Pierce that that, you know, 
McConnell will make a meal of that by saying, you know, this is basically like calling us deplorables. Like, oh, he thinks we are, you know, I noticed that Cuomo said it in a very, he said, uh, well, McConnell, his state, he never says Kentucky. And he's quite, he's just quite factual about it. Like there's not a line that's like, yeah. they're clinging to guns and religion that could be used as counter propaganda. Yeah. I, I, I think- do you think it was a mistake? No, I think in this instance, Cuomo, I don't believe that he plans to come to the convention and be nominated, although there have been right. people even talking about that. But I do think he can read a poll. And I think he knows that he's popular right now nationally, and he never really has been on people's minds much except in New York. Um, and he knows that Mitch McConnell is one of the most unpopular politicians in American mm -hmm. history. So I think, mm -hmm. I think that was a to a certain extent, he knew he could re react strongly um, to that one. But, you know, it was it also is, right, you know, yeah. today he he read a letter and he's, he what he, what seems to move Cuomo and I, you know, I'm only talking about Cuomo as a leader in a time of disaster and like this yeah, is no, your field. Understood. But so, so, you know, leaving aside the other times, his capacity to metabolize left brain information and and really he's able to popularize it. He's a broken record, you know, which is one of the good things a leader, they always tell you as a parent to do that, just say the same thing over and over again, same voice, we're New York tough. And tough means this and tough means that and tough means loving. You're tough, you're loving. Okay, questions. Every time, I mean, it's like, you know, my colleague, Mike Pesca was saying there's liturgy and then there's the right brain things, the homily at the end. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says, just the fact. Now this is just my personal opinion. And then he tells us his <laughs> right. personal opinion. Um, he also will smuggle some things under facts that are, you know, yeah. questionable. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. one of the facts that he gave us the other day is we wish our Muslim brothers and sisters happy Ramadan. Um, and that was one of the facts, which is wonderful because we know in New York that all New York leaders need to um, watch out for uh, religious bigotry during mm -hmm. holiday seasons for Jews and Muslims. So that's like a New York right. staple. Right. Fact. But it's so important to put yeah. it there that he puts happy Ramadan at the top, you know, which is just, yeah. I thought very genius. But anyway, so the left brain part of things. And then he has this, these beautiful platitudes at the end um, about how this will make us stronger. Right. But the, the, and then, you know, little things like the slide that says reopen and has question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Right. Mm -hmm. He's so good at telling us we don't know. Right. Gavin Newsom cannot do this. Gavin Newsom gets into doublespeak. Cuomo, there's just something in his cadences that he's capable of saying, look, I want to know, you want to know, I promise I won't do an right. impression. I yeah. want to know, you want to know, you want to know. Um, we all want to know, but we don't know, you know? And those question marks around reopen somehow that he has all the time are somehow also reassuring to me. He doesn't know something that I don't know. And the, okay, the last thing in my Cuomo, I, I yeah. should yeah. talk more about Newsom, but the the last thing is that um, he said, you know, and this, I wonder what you think of this in your field, but that he, he said, um, the truth sometimes is depressing. Sometimes it's uplifting. Sometimes it's confusing. But it's always better to hear the truth because the worst thing is the feeling you're being deceived. That's the case for the truth. Like it's not the case for the truth is not that we are all brilliant perceivers of truth and know the truth when we hear it. It's that it is actually hostile 
to perpetually try to deceive people, for a leader to perpetually deceive people. It's condescending, it's cruel, it's abusive, it's gaslighting, it makes people insane. And it's what we've been subjected to for nearly you know, three and a half years. And just the relief of him saying, I'm telling you the truth, not because I'm a God, but just because to, it's inhumane to deceive you. So I think it, that was really beautiful. I want to remind people that we're talking to Virginia Heffernan on COVID calls, and we do still have time to get some uh, questions and comments in. If you want to put them into YouTube live chat or tag me at US of Disaster on Twitter. Virginia, I want to, um, uh, I could talk to you about governors and, and Trump, but I, I want to actually, you had a great piece last week in Wired. I know you've been thinking a lot mm -hmm. about art and literature at this time. Just a little taste of this for people. Please go find this article from, um, in Wired Magazine by Virginia Heffernan, but here's a little quote. You, and so you've been reading the canon of plague novels. And you and I talked about that briefly a few weeks yeah. ago, because I was reading late at night, I was reading Camus' The Plague, and I've been, I'm almost done now with Defoe's uh, Journal of the Plague Year. Yes. I don't know if you read that one, and uh, but- I didn't read that it That should be next piece. for you, yeah. Yes, it uh, should, it should. Yeah, and it's, um, it's tremendous, but I just want to read this one little, this little bit here, because it's so, so great. But even as plague years generate, you argued, even as they generate twisty new fables, each time a novel pathogen gets on a global tear, existing human narratives are shattered. The old life is reached for again and again like a phantom limb. During outbreaks of infectious diseases, including smallpox, Spanish flu, and the current coronavirus, we live by stories of alternate universes in which history might be turned back, the sick healed, the dead brought back, normalcy restored. So I just was really struck by, by that. And in the piece, you talk about the possibility of plague literature um, to be a space of retreat for us. And I suppose literature mm -hmm. and art can always serve as that, a sort of reservoir mm -hmm. of human suffering. I've been thinking about history this way too. Like, yeah. why, do we, why are we reading old stories about 1793 yellow fever epidemic or 1918? Mm -hmm. Is it to learn a lesson for now? Maybe, but maybe it's also because that literature holds a reservoir of human dread and fear and loss that is consoling to us. Yeah. But you, uh, you have another argument in the piece, which maybe you can talk a little bit about now, about maybe some of, the, some of what that literature reveals to us in what you were just saying about, about, about lies, about mm. fascism, about mm -hmm. the need to be awake and aware of the yeah. pandemic as a moment when we may be worried about the pathogen, but there's something else happening here too. Yes. And, and I mean, so the yeah. literature is an alert of sorts, but it may not be just be an alert to stay indoors and listen to Dr. Fauci. It might be a political alert as well. Yes. I, it was yeah. such a complex piece and so nicely <laughs> delivered. I wonder if you could Thank talk you. a little more about it. Um, the, since, since 2016, so just, absolutely to clarify i i you know though i'm i'm not a at all a scientist so you know i often do did a phd in the humanities well like you um but um you know and science is sort of the ranking discourse of this time it's like the best, clearest way to see this particular virus it's the clearest way to understand the data around it but um I just like you, I, I just retreat into, you know, like my happy place. So I was just like, 
the Decameron is on my shelf. It like fell off my, you know, the first day I, I really took seriously that like this, this is really happening. Um, and I, and I, you know, dove in to read about the crazy adventures of the Boccaccio characters. Uh, anyone who hasn't read the, the Decameron should, should really read it. It's, it, I mean, it's just, it's so, it, it, it's like what they say about COVID dreams. It's just so vivid and crazy and like vaginas are devils and, you know, and, and, and a lover's head is buried in a basil pot and, um, and, you know, it's all, it's very capery and, um, and funny and kind of um, uh, macabre and it, it's anyway, it's terrific. But so I started to do that and I, that's because I just wanted to curl up and get away from it all. And I was consoled, and this may be the, what the history reading is doing. I just was consoled by seeing that we have the same responses mm. um, to plagues over and over again. That the move, first of all, to disinformation, and you know, in in Procopius's time, so this is a plague of in 550, the Justinian plague that started to interest me. Um, you know, he really counsels against. And by the way when we're talking about history and literature, they're the same thing in many plague years, you know, sure. because they're, they're, they're just journals of what happened. And Absolutely. we don't actually know, you know, nobody is a data scientist. They don't have like those good neural network data graphs in Procopius's time. So right. he tells you he's a historian of the time. Who knows if he's just like writing poetry or making stuff up. But anyway, in his time, he says, I will not give you basically astrology, quack cures, uh, you know, everything, but I won't tell you to put Lysol in your veins. I am just going to describe the bodies I see out the window, you know, and, um, and, you know, he, over and over again, he runs up against an astrology of the period as a science, you know, which we know to be a right. pseudoscience, but that everyone is crowding in with explanations that don't hit the mark, that just fill the air, that lead people in weird directions. Um, that the idea that that would be happening and that mm -hmm. there would be a cloud of disinformation, like the cloud of microbes, was somehow consoling to me. You know yeah. that because I could take what people were saying as you know, kind of yet another symptom of the pandemic. Defoe has a whole chapter on that about really okay. This quack is, I medicines. Don't know that I'll send you the link to it. It's, it's like the quack medicines the um there's even i mean almost that he i, mean, I don't want to make too much of it but there's one paragraph where he even says people had fallen into all of the under the spell of this trumpetry and i wow. thought come on man yes. that's too much like yes. you know but you know the idea that leaders would take up this opportunity to sell quack medicines in the 17th century in england so just like you i thought Amazing. there's something here useful yeah for me yeah, and uh, yes, and but the thing that I really learned from Procopius that hit closer to home, because it's one thing when they're telling us, oh, people are Jim Baker and they're selling quack stuff or they're preaching about the Zodiac, then you can say, haha, I would never do that because I have such a clear scientific mind. But then it became clear that Procopius, who started writing pornographic material about the leader Justinian while blaming him for the plague, and, you know, there was no idea that he should have gotten the ventilator sooner or shouldn't have done this or should have taken it seriously. You know, he just simply blamed him for his bad character. But his loathing for Justinian is pretty close to yours and mine for Donald Trump. And uh, I don't think we'd go so far as to write that, you know, weird smutty thing that he wrote to take him down. But, and then last year, 2019, a group of scientists, apropos of nothing, as far as I can tell, 
analyzed all kinds of numismatics and coins and mortuary uh, stuff in 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 the Ottoman Empire in the in the in the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, and um, and discovered that this Procopius plague or the Justinian plague wasn't really as destructive as 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 he said it was. It didn't kill ten million as he suggested, or you know one in two, or all of Constantinople. Um, that this was really kind of a propaganda play by Procopius, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then I thought, well. I have to be on guard against my own tendency to use this plague for my purposes, which is I want Trump out of office and we're fighting a virus. And so what a nice opportunity to say, well, none of us would be sick. I wouldn't have lost my aunt if, if, uh, if Donald Trump weren't president and it's all his fault. It, it, it's just that kind of recreation where we grind our gears um, mm -hmm. is, um, I think it's something you know, to sort of hold on to loosely. You know, not maybe not commit to that plot line right now because um, because uh, you know no leader handles a virus well. No, there is no right perfect response. Um, and uh, you know, even in South Korea, well, we talked, you and I talked about South Korea, but you know, there's no we can keep holding up these other countries as having done better than we have. Well, Cuomo today said maybe you know what we were gonna sh we were gonna close the airports to Italians you know, in January and February, just no, like that's just not going to happen. Um, we were going to, you know, start spraying down and fumigating, uh, you know, people in February and then putting them in, um, you know, these giant quarantines alone away from their families. No, just we weren't going to do it. So like, if you think that a good leader is one that would have done those things, you know, that's not the leader that we've ever had in the United States. So anyway, so there's that. So yeah. it, it was a cautionary tale for me against mm -hmm. doing this kind of propaganda. And then last, it was a case for something that I try to hold on to, that even though I do journalism now, it's fiction that interests me the most. And I like fiction because it's fiction labeled as fiction, right? So you can really clearly tell when you're watching a Netflix show, you don't mistake it for like Alex Jones or Sean Hannity or the performances of Donald Trump. If Donald Trump said, I am here playing a quack, you know, it's a little bit closer to like Dr. Phil is like yeah. more clearly playing a character, but then all the way over to some, you know, some like excellent HBO show about an evil doctor where you, you, you know, it's interesting. You want to watch someone a horrifying quack. Quacks are really interesting. Yeah. The thing is, you don't want to watch it under the sign of this is the truth and the president of the United mm. States. So I, I think in an earlier Wired piece, I said, in a climate of disinformation, just learn how to read fiction. Like, I'm just as interested in, you know, I was thinking, God, I hate the right. They love these disgusting stories about Hillary and Pizzagate and pedophilia. They're so revolting. I'm going to now just go watch this, you know, cozy British detective story about like a pedophilia scandal in a church. You know? <laughs> Same topics. As yeah, long as yeah, it's yeah. broad church, as long yeah, as it's yeah, got yeah, English yeah. people. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, same topics. Because we like, a lot of us like to read the plague, you know, the, the yeah. Camus thing about a, about a fictional plague. But get that part of your brain that knows how to, knows it's suspending disbelief and doesn't invest in it as, um, you know, as fact. Um, because when reality TV and Fox News blurred that line, um, there were, were, you know, readers, the whole generation of people who can't quite read Instagram as fiction, you know, Fox News as fiction. 
Um, and sometimes I'm one of them. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure you agree with me that showing those press, those briefings um, to people without framework, framing them as, you know, a combination of fiction, yeah. performance, and, uh, and yeah. lies, yeah. is is just is 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 a, is a public health hazard in itself. Um, and uh, and so for me, turning to something like you know, turning to outrageous fiction. Um, is a nice way to remind myself of what the truth looks like, which is not that. I hadn't thought of it that way. It's such an interesting insight to me that, that, and of course, I'm a humanist and I teach at a university. Let me make that disclosure. But yeah. the value of being able to discern true statements from false statements or statements of any type and to try to understand the point of view of the person making it, those yeah. are just core skills in a free society and you know yeah. to come back to, i mean that was what camus was invested in in writing the play yes he could yes. have written a factual history of the plague i think he would have written a very good one it, yeah. and and orwell could have written orwell did write histories he wrote the history yes. of the spanish civil war he could have written histories but he chose fiction as a venue i think often because he he was instructing i mean he's sort of you know yes. using that tool as a, a, a to expose things that you couldn't in the history or to create a space where you can be even more imaginative in explaining propaganda in all of its forms. Yes, and, yes. But, but and you know, De yeah. Defoe is a perfect example because Defoe actually, like in his own time, was so on the line. You know, Mal Flanders, he wrote in the voice of this kind of prostitute figure. Um, and it's like called Mal Flanders being the true story of a something something. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it is, it might as well be like the surreal life from the 90s. It's just like as crazy as it gets, full Boccaccio crazy, crazy misadventures, yeah. picaresque, sexuality, death. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, that's the novel, the, the birth mm -hmm. of the novel in English is, mm -hmm. are these books that are meant to blur the line? Um, because you're more interested in reading the true story of Maul Flanders mm -hmm. than the, like, you know, invention by, by Daniel Defoe. But then we became able, ideally, you know, readers in, interested in novels, interested in film, Ha, you know, have a place in your brain that is just very satisfied by for the formal conventions of fiction, you know? And that's why I think there's something harrowing about Trump's fiction, malevolent fictions, because they're also um, uh, inconsistent, they don't have emphasis, they don't have any beauty yeah. to them, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, so, so anyway, the, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the no a... novels are always consoling. You know? it's, it's not, people have said it's not, it's not original idea to me that, that if you were to make the novel of the Trump presidency, it'd actually be a very unsatisfying novel because you wouldn't believe him as the character. Yeah, He's, it's funny, know. Um, Jane, Jane Mayer, who just did a profile of Mitch McConnell was on Trumpcast yesterday and oh, wow. it, it, she, people say the that same thing. It, it actually, I mean, she's so great, but it, the, um, People say the same thing about McConnell as they do um, about Trump, which is like, um, you know, he's unmolested by the rumblings of a soul, I think Mark Singer said, you know, that like, there's some, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing, there's, there's, a, there's an emptiness or kind of black hole, um, not even villainy, just, just a kind of, yeah, just a black hole. And, um, and yeah, and that's not, especially good fiction. Um, I know we're probably running out of time, but yeah, I do, I have to fit in one more thing. Yeah, go ahead. 
So MIT did a study in the beginning of, right after the, well, I don't know, uh, maybe 2017, end of 2017 about disinformation and discovered that as much as we think that it's um, confirmation bias that has us share disinformation, that it's much, it's actually more likely that we'll share two things, two hallmarks of the things that we tend to share and gravitate toward. One, they're disgusting. They have an element of either porn or snuff to them. So that there's a kind of hyper arousal that they generate. And watching Trump, whether you believed him or not, talk about injecting disinfectant into your veins or whatever, it, it, you can even see that I want to say it again yeah, because I it's know. such an exciting, scary thing too. to say. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, that what you know, that is so shareable because it's revolting, because it's visceral, because it, you know, it works in the body, works <coughs> sorry, like porn and snuff to arouse the body. And then the other thing is, all things being equal, we share lies more than we share the truth. So even a good story about Trump that's true, there was apparently some story where he flew a sick kid to the hospital on his plane. Um, Trumpites, red, ha red hats didn't share it because it just was boring. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it doesn't fit. It's not exciting. It's not, yeah. yeah. So I've tried to, I've been trying to make the case that, you know, quieter pleasures. You know, yeah. where like they call this the great pause in New York, this period. And uh, I'm looking over my partner has a thousand piece puzzle that he and my son have worked on, been working on. This is maybe the third that they've done. Jigsaw puzzles, quieter pleasures. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Virginia Heffernan, thank you so much for sharing um, in a psychoanalysis of the president of the United States with me, but also these, I think, really important meditations on, on literature and on art in this time. And I hope, um, I don't hope the pandemic lasts much longer, but I know that it is going to last a bit longer. So maybe we'll get a chance to follow up at some point later on some of these, some of these ideas. So thank you for all your writing and all you're doing and thanks for coming on COVID Calls. And thank you for doing this, Scott. It's a great project. So I wanna remind everyone that COVID Calls is on every day, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And you can catch us on YouTube Live and you can find out more about COVID Calls at US of Disaster. We'll see you all on Monday and stay healthy, everyone. Thanks.